Welcome back to the Fitz News Studio for your week in review. As always, a very busy week here at Fitz News. A lot to cover. Let's dive right in. We're going to talk about the Carolina Panthers. The NFL's deal with the state of South Carolina is kaput, people. It's donezo. We're going to detail how that happened and what's next. We're going to talk about the latest in the Bowen Turner saga, a story which has captivated national attention, national outrage, really. It's generated a ton of interest and attention. We're going to look into the status of the various congressional races in South Carolina, including some developments in the 6th Congressional District, which is a race we don't really talk about that often. And last but not least, Dylan Nolan and I are going to sit down and talk critical race theory. Stay tuned for all that on your Week in Review. So we're going to start this week with the Carolina Panthers, the National Football League franchise that for the last four years has failed to make the playoffs, which has posted a 15-33 and record over the last three seasons, and which is heading into its third year under head coach Matt Rule without much in the way of optimism as for a successful season. So basically a franchise in decline. But the Panthers entered into an agreement with the state of South Carolina back in 2019 to build their new practice facility and their corporate headquarters in Rock Hill, South Carolina, just south of Charlotte on Interstate 77. So this is a big deal. It's a essentially a quarter billion dollar investment uh, by state taxpayers, whether at the, the state level or the local level, uh, including $70 million for an interchange and roughly $140 million in income tax incentives and related uh job development credits. So got a huge pile of cash coming from the state of South Carolina to the Panthers. Now, the Panthers pulled the plug on this deal. And everyone's asking, why? What's going on? No one can seem to make sense of it. Well, we did a story a few weeks ago uh, in which a sitting state senator, Wes Clymer, went on the record with us and talked about how the Panthers weren't acting rationally, how their owner, David Tepper, was not a rational actor, in other words. And we've done a little digging into this, and we found some disconnects in this deal between Tepper and some of the folks on the ground who have been pushing this deal and trying to negotiate this deal. And in fact, one of these people, after Tepper basically pulls the plug on the deal, uh, goes to a local Rotary Club and says, oh, that was just an olive branch. That's just a way to start negotiations, which hmm, I would say that's evidence of a lack of rationality, people. Uh, to pull the plug on a deal and then say that's just an olive branch. I don't, I don't really understand that. But here's the thing. Whether this was a good deal or a bad deal, right, whether, whether this was going to make the state money or, 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 or be a waste of money, it's still an unfair government intervention in the marketplace. And as I always say, even if a deal ends up being a, quote, winner, they're still a loser. And I'm talking about the taxpayers who have to show up front to pay for the deal. I've said all along that these, these sorts of agreements, these crony capitalist, cozy deals between politicians and billionaires are no good. And in fact, in the arena of sports, uh, particularly professional sports franchises, there is voluminous research which shows they are terrible deals, that the subsidy capture on such agreements literally limited to the top handful of team executives, players. Nobody else benefits from this, people. It's a handout to rich people coming out of your pocket. 
Again, those deals infuriate me because they erode, each one of them, at the ability of small businesses to compete, at the ability of individual taxpayers to keep more of what they earn. I think they're wrong. I also think politicians like to lie about them. And I mentioned this, we did a video on this earlier in the week, but I didn't get into the specifics. And on the Week in Review, we get to dig a little bit deeper on these things, a lot deeper. And I wanted to bring up some numbers related to this deal. Three years ago, when Governor Henry McMaster was pushing this agreement, this is his signature economic deal, people. This is the one that he you know, touted the Panthers are coming to South Carolina. Never mind that Panthers were never coming to South Carolina. They were going to move their practice facility here. Panthers are staying in Charlotte, people. They were never coming to South Carolina. But anyway, McMaster said that this deal was going to bring 5,700 jobs to South Carolina. 5,700 jobs. Well, to his credit, State Senator Dick Harpulian commissioned a wonderfully brilliant, gifted economist, Rebecca Gunlaugson. He commissioned her to do a, a real economic assessment of this deal. You know how many, how many jobs she found that this deal would create, people? 208. So on the one hand, you got Governor McMaster, 5,700 jobs. And Rebecca Gunlaugson did the actual research. And she's a former Commerce Department official, uh, people. She knows all the tricks. She found that the actual number, 208. It's a big difference, isn't it? So I said earlier this week that the governor of South Carolina lied about the deal. Well, folks, he didn't just lie. He told a whopper. So there was an update this week in the saga of Bowen Turner, the Orangeburg, South Carolina teenager who was controversially granted probation after allegedly raping three different women over a period of just over a year back in 2018 and 2019. This case has garnered international attention, uh, outrage, probably the better word for it. Uh, and there was some breaking news in that story this week, as we exclusively reported earlier, uh, the victim's advocate in that case, Sarah Ford, uh, has filed a motion to the South Carolina Court of Appeals seeking a review of the sentencing hearing. Uh, now, it's not necessarily a challenge of the sentence, but Ford made some interesting arguments, noting that the victims in this case, and particularly the victim, Chloe Bess, uh, regular uh, members of our audience know Chloe very well. She's spoken on camera with us uh, several different segments about what she experienced at the hands of Bowen Turner. Uh, but in that case, what Ford is arguing is essentially that Chloe Bess's rights as a victim in South Carolina, constitutionally protected rights, there's actually a constitutional bill of rights in South Carolina people, that those rights were thrown out the window to give Bowen Turner a plea deal, a very controversial plea deal, by the way, because again, he only got probation, doesn't even have to register as a sex offender, literal slap on the wrist. So while we covered that news, uh, you can read all about that on FITS. You can read the filing. We've got the the motion that, that was filed with the Court of Appeals there. Uh, while we covered that, our executive editor, Liz Farrell, did another great segment, diving a bit deeper into two of the main characters in this Bowen Turner saga. And I'm referring, of course, uh, to Judge Markley Dennis, uh, who was the judge who controversially approved uh, this deal, and the solicitor in the office of Second Circuit Solicitor Bill Weeks, who negotiated it. So I want to cut to that segment real quick, a very insightful conversation between our Liz Farrell and Dylan Nolan. Let's cut to that real quick. 
So Judge Marthy Dennis gives, uh, I would say, male defendants the benefit of the doubt. And he seems like a guy who likes, who really truly believes in rehabilitation. Um, the idea that, you know, I want to give somebody a chance to um, do the right thing and to improve their life. And that seems to be the trend when I look at, you know, the cases that he uh, was presiding over since 1994. And a couple of those cases, you know, drew so much controversy, though. Um, in 1995, there was a father who um, was accused of paying his 14-year-old daughter to have sex with her, and he had been having sex with her since she was five years old. And he was sentenced to um, 10 years, suspended to probation, uh, and he was supposed to go get therapy uh, in lieu of prison, basically. And what happened was, you know, the, the newspaper wrote the story, and readers read it and were outraged. So they started writing in letters and calling in and saying, this is an outrage. This is not, you know, what our judges should be doing. And instead this uh, prosecutor, she wrote an op-ed in defense of the judge, which was interesting, um, basically saying that, you know, you don't know what you're talking about out there. This is an appropriate sentence. I even think she said the victim did not want her father to go to prison, which, you know, she's 14 years old um, and certainly, you know, loves her father, I'm sure, but that's not a, that's not for a 14 year old to decide, that's for a judge to decide. And he decided on therapy. And unfortunately we don't know the outcome of that, but um, you know, obviously it's a very shocking one. I want to thank Liz and Dylan for that excellent work. I got to ask though, here's a question. What is it going to take? What is it going to take in this state for the politicians who appoint these judges to start taking this problem seriously. The Bowen Turner case, it's exposed a number of different elements that we've been writing about, that we've been talking about here at Fitz News for months, for years, in fact. Uh, I'm talking about the controversial way that South Carolina uh, elects judges, which is through the legislature. Literally, the same lawyer legislators that go before these judges decide who gets to fill their seats, right? Right. And we expect that system to be fair. We expect that system to work in the interest of justice. Of course, it doesn't work in the interest of justice, people. It works in the interest of the powerful lawyer legislators who pick the judges. So again, we've talked about reforming that process. We've talked about reforming bond so that violent criminals, people who are accused, again, repeat offenders, are not just turned back out on the street with absolutely no consequence. We've talked about uh, sentencing reform so that mandatory minimum actually means a mandatory minimum. I've even said we should go to the federal system where we don't have parole in South Carolina. Literally impose a sentence and enforce the sentence. I know, it's so complicated, right? Have a punishment, enforce the punishment. Too simple, right? But again, all of this once leads me to something that I, I feel very passionately about because it's something that happened very close to my house. In fact, my wife was shopping at the Columbiana Center Mall uh, on Friday of last week. The very next day, less than 24 hours later, there was a shooting at that mall that left 15 people wounded, nine of them by gunfire, uh, and resulted in a suspect in that, in that shooting being granted bond. Now, the suspect was never released from jail because he faced 10 additional charges shortly thereafter. But this guy was literally granted bond. Again, I don't know 
why we call it a justice system in South Carolina, because that's not justice. That's not justice. When somebody is accused of being an active participant in a mass shooting event, and they're granted bond the next day, something is wrong with that system. And I'm very glad that for the first time, that failure, that chronic system failure that we've been writing about, that we've been talking about again for months and for years, was finally picked up by the national media, finally finally focused on, and South Carolina politicians are finally, at long last, starting to pay attention to that. And I think that's incredibly important. Now, one of the things that we're going to continue to do, we're going to continue to call out the judges who grant these bonds. We're going to continue to call out the politicians who vote for them by showing you their votes. And last but not least, we're going to encourage you not to give your vote to any politician who supports a judge that's going to make decisions like this, which, again, trample on the rights of victims and materially erode public safety. And as we go back to Bowen Turner, I want to bring it back to that because that's the case that, again, drew international attention to this problem. We've been working very hard over the last few weeks working on a mini documentary related to that. And so I want everybody to be on the lookout for that. It's probably coming next week. Certainly by the week after that, we should have it done. But we've been talking to victims. We've been talking to victims' advocates. And it's going to be an incredibly powerful segment. And once again, it's going to demand this very accountability that has been lacking in this state for far too long. So there's a lot of news coming out of the United States Congress this week, the South Carolina delegation in particular. And there was, in fact, a new video starring Nancy Mace, the incumbent in the 1st Congressional District. No, not that video. That gets me every time, every time. This is a different video, though. We're talking about video of Nancy Mace being heckled at a Southern Republican Women of Beaufort County event. Now, again, you start thinking about that. Let's think about this group here. Where, are we talking G-MILFs? I mean, Southern Republican Women of Beaufort County. They don't seem like the heckling type. I, you know. Anyway, I, I do know a few people that were actually in attendance at that. And I just want to be clear, they fall squarely in the MILF category, not, not G-MILF. So just, wait a minute. I don't know if clarifying that helps or hurts me. Never mind. Anyway, Mace was heckled by this crowd, and she was heckled over her answer uh, to a question, or rather her non-answer, to a question about Donald Trump. And specifically, did she believe that Donald Trump was responsible for the January 6, 2021 rioting at the, at the U.S. Capitol building? Uh, and did she believe that he was, you know, essentially a, uh, an insurrectionist, uh, not a patriot, as they like to call themselves, the, the MAGA crowd? So this was an interesting exchange, and Mace basically declined to answer the question and instead pivoted to her experiences on the, on the fateful morning of January 6, 2021. And again, I've never called out Mace or Tom Rice, who, who actually voted to impeach Trump in the aftermath of, of those riots. Uh, Mace did not vote to impeach him. Uh, she criticized him very harshly, didn't vote to impeach him, though. But, but I've never gone after either one of them for that because I wasn't there. Okay, I don't, you know, I don't have that experience. That was their situation that they were in. It was, uh, you know, they reacted to it, I guess, as they felt they should. I don't think I would have voted the way that Tom Rice voted, and I I don't think I would have said what what Nancy Mace said, but Mace asked these people to listen to her perspective, and I can certainly understand her perspective. Now, 
those attending this event, these Southern Beaufort Republican women, they did not understand her perspective. And in fact, let's uh, let's cut to that clip real quick and see how they respond. Okay, I just want to ask you something very quickly. Do you feel that Donald Trump was responsible for January 6th? Do you see him as an insurrectionist? Insurrectionist, and should all these people that are still in jail be there? you've been arrested for, if you have lacked due process, whether it's January 6th or another, call our office and we will assist you. There are members of Congress who are Democrats. If you are arrested for January 6th, they will turn you away and they will not help you. Okay? And so it's really important that we understand that uh, that part of it, number one. Number two, I've been working on civil rights issues for a long, long time, both as a state lawmaker and as a member of Congress. So I don't care who you are or what's happened, call our office and we'll help you. To date, we've not had anybody in the district have their due process rights for the January 6th event uh, that happened. And I don't expect you all, all of you, to agree with me on my comments. Okay, but I was there that day. And I at least want you to understand my perspective as a single mom. I was stuck in a tunnel at one point because we were evacuated from our office. And I was with Dan Crenshaw, sitting next to a Navy SEAL. There were two other members of Congress, about probably 50 to 100 staffers. We were evacuated from our offices. And Dan Crenshaw turns to me and he says, this is really unsafe, this is dangerous. And then I read a police report 10 days later saying that some people that were up there knew that there were members of Congress in the tunnel downstairs and they were trying to find a way to get to us. And it was my daughter and my son who were calling me that day, Mommy, am I ever gonna see you again? Are you alive? Are you okay? They're teenagers, they're on social media, they saw the videos, they saw the violence. And I have yeah, and I have kids that I have to come back home to. I now carry a gun, a six hour P365 nine millimeter everywhere I go because I get threats from the far left all over the place. And so I don't expect you, don't have to agree with me, but at least understand my perspective. Answer the question. She has 30 minutes. It's her time to use it any way she wants to. Thank you. Next question. Oh, she can't answer it. So I don't know, do we call that a smattering? Does that rise to the level of a smattering? I. That's what Mace's... Uh, backers claimed it was just a smattering of booze, a smattering of booze. But I love the part where the lady stands up and chides her fe fellow um, G-MILFs uh, over, their, over their harsh criticism of Mace. But anyway, this is going to be uh, a race that obviously we've been following it for weeks, uh, exclusively posted that video earlier this week. But this is a race between Mace and Trump's candidate of choice, Katie Arrington, uh, that this news outlet has been covering from the very beginning. And and once again, the bigger race uh, is the proxies. Uh, uh, these these candidates are, are are essentially pawns in the game, the bigger game for control of the Republican Party ahead of the 2024 presidential election. And this race and the race up in the uh, 7th Congressional District, where Trump has endorsed uh, House Majority Leader Russell Fry against incumbent Tom Rice, these races are going to be pivotal tests of Trump's clout in the early voting Palmetto State. So count on us to keep you posted on the very latest developments in both of those races. All right, so Mace wasn't the only member of the South Carolina congressional delegation who was in the news this week. Congressman Jim Clyburn, the majority whip, one of the most powerful men in Washington, D.C., was the focus of an exclusive report by Fox News, their digital desk. Uh, 
in which it was revealed that he'd given $200,000 of campaign cash basically to members of his family, specifically uh, to two of his daughters and their husbands. Now, one of the daughters, Jennifer Clyburn Reed, uh, if you're a longtime member of our audience, you'll know that she is Clyburn's familial heir. Apparently, the 6th Congressional District is a little bit like North Korea in terms of how it operates, and Clyburn is designated uh, his daughter to be his familial heir, following him in the U.S. Congress. Uh, so will that happen? Will this scandal impact his electoral chances? Of course not, because, again, this district was drawn in 1993 as a majority-minority district, and Clyburn has been redrawing the lines every 10 years since then to make sure it stays that way and to make sure he retains his hold on power, which, again, a very influential position in Washington, D.C. Not only is he one of the ranking members of the United States House of Representatives, but Clyburn also, if you'll remember, was integral in U.S. President Joe Biden's come from behind, first in the South victory, literally resurrected his campaign back in 2020 and delivered the Democratic nomination and thus the White House to Joe Biden. So Jim Clyburn, big time mover and shaker, uh, but doling out some big bucks to his own family from his campaign funds. Do I get particularly exercised about campaign finance scandals like this? Not really. Uh, the accountability here is really to the donors to Clyburn's campaign. Now, speaking of those donors, though, I would like to point out that one of those donors is Columbia, South Carolina Mayor Steve Benjamin, who is working overtime to get his wife, DeAndrea Benjamin, a seat on the U.S. Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. And Benjamin is relying on Clyburn to get that done for him, uh, which is a dubious proposition given that Clyburn's top choice for the Supreme Court was actually rejected by Biden. He chose to go another route. So will Clyburn have more success in the Fourth Circuit race? We'll have to see. Uh, but it was interesting to see how he's spending that campaign money, uh, keeping it all in the family. More on that and more on all the congressional developments. Keep it tuned to Fitz News, your source for South Carolina politics. All right, so earlier this month, I did a big story on critical race theory and how it's being implemented in South Carolina's government-run schools. That story sparked quite a response uh, from parents, from local leaders, and from state leaders who were either upset with the CRT or upset with my coverage of it. Now, at the time that story ran, I told everybody who dialed in, who offered feedback, that our director of special projects, Dylan Nolan, was preparing a much more extensive look at CRT, a historical look, not only on the issue, but how it involves South Carolina history and the history of our country. Dylan published that story this week, and it's one of the best things that has ever run on Fitz News. Uh, I'm so proud to publish it. And Dylan's here with us in the studio today to talk about that story and tell us a little bit about what went into it. Dylan. Give us the CRT update. Well, first of all, thank you for gassing me up, Will. You know, now I guess I'm going to have a Fitz News sized ego appropriate for working at this place. Look at this guy. Um, but I really did take a long time. I mean, I've been writing this piece since December because that's when I got my FOIA requests in from the initial story. And the initial story started a really interesting dialogue with me with some people on Twitter. And I thought about what they said and I thought about how I would respond to what they said. And so I did a lot of research. I dug into South Carolina's past, some really important m moments in the civil rights movement in South Carolina, and I made sure to incorporate those in my story. So if you're somebody who might hear about a critical race theory story coming from, you know, a smarmy 22-year-old white recent college graduate and think that he's an idiot, well, you're right that I'm an idiot, but <laughs> this story is well-researched, and I would encourage you to read it. 
Um, I did put a lot of thought into it. And I love to hear what other people have to say. As you know, we have the open microphone policy. I'm really proud to work at a place that values, you know, creating a, a public discussion about important topics. So if people disagree, you know, give the piece a read and then submit uh, a well thought out response. But I will tell you that this is an important issue. We were just covering the superintendent of education debate and critical race theory even came up during the opening prayer. I mean, that's that that's how into this issue that people are. Absolutely. It's a huge issue. And not only the opening prayer, it dominated the first segment of discussion at that debate, didn't it? It did. Yeah. And it came up again. So it's one of these issues that is not going anywhere. And I dove in, tried to give it an extensive treatment. And I would encourage you to check it out. That's right. Dylan Nolan's piece on CRT published this week on Fitz News. I told everybody who responded to mine that his was better. And he threw that. Uh, I threw that gauntlet down. Dylan picked it up. But we got. we both have to bow to the superior Buddha nature of another writer uh, who's been featured on our site. And I'm talking about Prelo Alexander. People, if you have not read Prelo Alexander's two latest columns on Fitz News, one of them is a response uh, to COVID, po living in post-COVID America. Uh, the other is more of a, a broader piece on just the state of America and what sort of legacy are we going to leave to future generations. They are two of the most thought-provoking pieces I've ever read, let alone published. Just a total privilege to pu publish Prelo's works. Dylan? Yeah, I mean, he's an author. He has his own publisher. I'm not really sure why he gives us all of this great material for free. It feels like we should be paying him. I don't really want to say that, though, because maybe that will put the idea in his head. But the guy publishes the best things that go on Fitz News. He does. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, his writing is superior. It's absolutely unbelievable. And I think it is in his head, though, because we were trading some messages recently, and I was complimenting him. He said he appreciated the compliments, but that, you know, compliments didn't pay the bills. Oh, uh, well, uh, I guess that wasn't I, exactly uh, well he said it, but, uh, you know, Prelo's got a way with words. But I'm telling you, folks, Prelo Alexander's uh, columns on Fist News are something to read, just like Dylan's piece on CRT. And as Dylan said, uh, folks, it's a marketplace. It's not just what we think. It's not just the views of the, of the guest writers we publish. We want to hear your views and publish your take on these issues. So if you've got an intelligent uh, take on any issue uh, of significance facing our state, our country, our world, uh, or your community, uh, send it to us. Uh, we would love to publish it. And again, that's the commitment to the marketplace of ideas you're always going to find at Fitz News. And if they have an unintelligent take, they can send it to us on Twitter. That's correct. <laughs> Where all the dumb ideas go, right? Although I don't know, you know, Elon Musk making the move. Could see some change to the tweets, Dylan. Maybe we'll be back. Will is fiending. He's jonesing. He's shaking. He's hoping. Mm -hmm. that it's Elon not just makes the cold the brew. It's not just the cold brew. It's not just my mellifluous cold brew. Yes. All right. For all that, keep it on fits where the marketplace of ideas is always open and our microphone is always on. So that's a wrap for this week's edition. As you may have noticed, we did not get into the Murdoch murders, crime and corruption saga. There, truth be told, wasn't a lot happening on that front this week. Once again, we were expecting indictments, financial indictments related to this case, uh, perhaps even a new co-defendant in some of the financial schemes that Alec Murdoch and his network apparently uh, were involved in. That did not happen, however, so we are waiting Maybe it'll be next week we'll get some indictments on the Murdoch murders, crime, and corruption saga. But for the latest news on that story, which was broken exclusively by Fitz and which our news outlet has driven for months, 
focusing on all the latest developments there. Keep it tuned to Fitz News. And also, if you haven't checked it out yet, check out the Murdoch Murders podcast. Mandy Matney, our news director, does an amazing job with that format. So check it out if you haven't seen it. Till next time, we'll see you.